Welcome to Altered Mobility, where we talk about the history of publicly available transportation and public spaces. I am your host, Cheryl Gross Glazer, and today we are going to do another fun movie episode. We are going to cover You've Got Mail, starring Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. But first, for our moment of equity. In 1940, uh, the average Manhattan rent was $50, with a three-room apartment, pretty small, one-bedroom on the Upper West Side, going for $98. Now, remember, you're saying, oh, that's much more than the average, but remember, the, the rents are, the average rent is kept lower because you're taking into account places like the Lower East Side, in Chinatown, um, even Harlem. There were quite a few neighborhoods in Manhattan where you had people who worked in blue-collar jobs and their families. By 1960, rents had climbed to an average of over 500. On the Upper West Side, with rent control and reasonably priced co-ops, you had a lot of government workers in these years, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, librarians, teachers, but you didn't need to be wealthy. You certainly needed a good job, but you didn't need to be wealthy to live there. And you had housing stock that was cheap and affordable uh, in in other parts of Manhattan for people who couldn't afford uh, middle-class housing. but this increasing unaffordable unaffordability for anyone who didn't buy at the right time or wasn't lucky enough to have locked gotten locked into a good rent uh, controlled apartment decades ago, maybe even 50 years ago, has resulted uh, in recent years in a large exodus of people of color and and even uh, white people. I shouldn't say even white people because there are plenty of middle class white people, but um, but especially people of color. According to writer Peggy Taylor, who is herself a woman of color, we're now witnessing a mass migration to for more affordable locations, often to metropolitan areas down south. So in some ways, reversing uh, a little bit the great migration that occurred um, a century ago. And of course, this is not only happening in New York, but in other high-priced cities or areas of high-priced areas of cities uh, as well. So, in this uh, in this episode for you've got mail, where we're actually visiting a neighborhood right next to a neighborhood we visited in the West Side Story episode. Uh, well, you might call that episode is situated on the Upper West Side. Um, it's the lower. And, you know, the very border of the Upper West Side, just just north of Columbus Circle by Lincoln Center. Whereas in this episode, uh, for You've Got Mail, we're firmly on the Upper West Side. So I'm talking the streets from the 70s through the 90s, west of Central Park. And these streets have transformed in the last 50 years, but certainly even in the last like 10, 15 years, uh, from a place where you had working to middle-class individuals and families, um, somewhat affordable. Uh, In the last 30 years, it's become completely unaffordable for anybody without a lot of money. Uh, The families you see are either very young, so they're still living in that small, small apartment and they'll move out when they need more space, or there's a source of a lot of money, whether it's their jobs or families, because it's super, uh, the, the rents and the prices of apartments have got just skyrocketed. 
And even even one bedroom and studios have gotten very high. So when we talk equity, you know, in these moments of equity, sometimes, you know, we, we are going to people, we explore populations and places uh, that really have nothing. But we have to remember that the middle class getting squeezed is a very big issue as well for the health of uh, cities. So we're talking about You Got Mail, a very cute romantic comedy with sharp writing, a wonderful cast. Um, it's kind of like a a yin and yang, you know, if you want to think of uh, Woody Allen on one side of that equation. This is sort of on the other side. It makes New York into a very sweet place. Um, everybody's nice. It's it's for the most part de-ethnicized and de-racialized, if you will. It, it almost feels like, you know, you could have the same cast in a movie anywhere across the country. Um, so, You've Got Mail is uh, a movie in from 1998. It's set in Manhattan on the Upper West Side. Um, and as in, and you know, many a romantic comedy, we have our two leads loathe each other before they realize they're in love. And I have to say, the movie, the reason to watch this movie is probably as much or more for the supporting performances as it is to see the leads because the supporting actors really shine brightly in this and they add all of the character so we have such actors as gene stapleton dapney coleman parker posey J uh, dave chappelle greg kinnear and steve zahn all give you know really wonderful performances and then we have you know, very small appearances by uh, Jane Addams, Vianne Cox, and Deborah Rush uh, that are wonderful. Um, and there's people I haven't even mentioned, particularly one of the people who uh, works in the shop with Meg Ryan, who I should have I should have uh, mentioned as well. But anyway, they really add the character to the movie, the the kind of quirkiness. So. In this episode, we're also, as we go through the movie, going to explore the histories of two uh, neighborhood parks, one very small and one quite large, as well as a train station of the New York City subway. And what I like about the use of public spaces in this movie, and generally the employment of locations on the Upper West Side, is that viewers are treated to a neighborhood feel and an affectionate view of what it's like to be there, even though uh, sort of uh, distances are, are convoluted a little bit. I'm sure, you know, I, I don't know Paris that well, but I'll just use it as an example. I've been there. I'm familiar with, you know, some neighborhoods. But if you took, you know, a place 50 blocks from another place, would I notice that in a movie? You know, if you said the person walked directly there. I don't know. Probably not. But New York, I would notice. And a couple of other cities as well, definitely. Um, but if you're not from New York, it doesn't matter. And New Yorkers love to uh, pick out these things. 
Okay, so now other cities have equally charming spaces, but New Yorkers are navel gazers who love to write about their city, featured in plays, TV shows, and in films. Um, so it's easy to find uh, spots, you know, featured in movies much, much easier than it would be um, to find movies or TV shows that give you a same sense of, let's say, a Boston or a Pittsburgh or an L.A. even. Of course, in L.A., they're always in their cars, basically, so you don't really get a sense in that same way. That's just my opinion. So to, to summarize the plot, we have two people played by Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, so that's Joe Fox and Kathleen Kelly. They meet under pen names in an email chat room. So think meeting on TikTok or Instagram or Twitter with a handle that doesn't contain your name. Um, this is the primitive years when email was still sort of new, but not brand new anymore. Uh, I'd say most people who were working or you know, communicating. We're using it by then. It's it's before um, text messages, kind of, before most people had cell phones. Yeah. Okay, just trying to think. <laughs> uh, so they both live and work on the Upper West Side, and of course, this being a movie, they both live in fabulous apartments, of course. His is very, you know, much more modern, big. Hers is cutesy, charming. Okay, reflecting their personalities and who they are, they're, you know, establishing them in the movie. So despite the fact that they each have a serious relationship with somebody else, uh, they have become confidants in this, in this email exchange. And we see them often, they can't wait to receive each other's emails, and they really enjoy writing and sharing with each other. They're just schmoozing about life, but they're revealing their inner worlds, and they're not really complaining about their significant others. There's no, I have to get out of this relationship, I can't stand this person, or what do I do, they're so nice, you know, not, they're not really talking that way. Okay, however, this being a comedy, taking, you know, some cues from Shakespeare and, and others, in real life, they're enemies in business. And, um, and when they meet in person, they don't know that, you know, the email confidant is that person. So, okay, so we have Hanks. Tom Hanks is Joe Fox. He's of the mega bookstore Fox's Books. I uh, think the old Barnes & Noble chain where there's plenty of places to sit and read and tons of books, a really large store. And then we have Meg Ryan as the owner of a very old, charming, small children's bookstore. That's an institution in the neighborhood. And the same neighborhood, of course, very close by, uh, is... Is where this chain bookstore will be located and it's just as we start the movie being constructed um, not the building but the space so for some reason this small bookstore which does manage to make some money can afford three loyal seemingly full-time employees uh, and Meg Ryan of course knows her customers by name this being a very charming little bookstore a neighborhood place so, we actually see Meg Ryan on the subway. It looks like the IRT, and I'll mention that later. 
the IRT. Uh, we see uh, the old neighborhood landmark of H&H Bagels, a great place, no longer there. We see up 72nd Street towards Columbus Avenue. Uh, we see lots of the Starbucks at 81st and Broadway, both inside and out. Uh, but Starbucks was, Starbucks was newer in 1998, not quite new. And I have to say it wasn't cool even then. But... Uh, it was a presence. There's tons of Starbucks in Manhattan. Uh, we see our c characters quite a few times at 72nd Street. And that's West 72nd Street for those of you who might not be aware that West and East each begin at 5th Avenue or in this neighborhood uh, at Central Park West on the west side of the park. Park Central Park is bordered on the east side by 5th Avenue, the west side, Central Park West. Okay. Um, and so now we're going to explore our first, uh, our first landmark. That's um, the 72nd Street subway station. Now there are other 72nd Street subway stations. This one is the one on West 72nd at Broadway. Okay, I don't want to confuse anybody who's going up the 8th Avenue line, you know, the A and the E. I don't want to confuse anybody on the east side. All right. So, uh, to locate you, Verdi Square is located right across the street on the north side from the iconic 72nd Street station. This is where 72nd meets Broadway and where Amsterdam Avenue intersects with Broadway. Uh, Broadway, of course, runs diagonally, so it as it goes up its trajectory up Manhattan, it, it crosses many avenues. Uh, the station serves what was known as the 7th Avenue Broadway line of the old IRT, or Interborough Rapid Transit Company. Uh, it's a 1-2-3 station. Two, the 2 and the 3 are the express trains, and the 1 is a local. And I'll go into that a little bit more later. In fact, in a second. <laughs> and 72nd is an express train station, but it's really narrow and it has the feel of a local station. Um, it's only one stop on the express from 42nd Street. So if you're shopping in Midtown or going anywhere uh, or you've just taken Amtrak into the city, you've hopped on, you know, a train at 34th Street or 33rd Street, um, and you don't have that much luggage to schlep, so you're willing to go up and down steps generally. You take the two or the three, it's just two stops. I mean, it's like five minutes. Takes less time than any uh, taxi would take from Penn Station. I mean, the subway, if you get on an express train, it can be uh, really fast. And that's not only in, in Manhattan uh, or Midtown. Um, the express trains go throughout the city. And I can talk about more about that in a different episode. So the 72nd Street Station is unusual because it's above ground, that, that entry point and where you used to get your tokens, now you get your metro cards um, and you go through the turnstiles. But you do have to walk down the stairs or an elevator um, to get a train. There's no escalators in this station. Like the subway itself, this station has been crowded since the day it opened more than a century ago. 
Uh, and though there are two entrances, the platforms where one waits and the staircases, uh, they don't require too many people before you, you start to feel crowded, feel like a bit of a sardine. But it's New York, so get over it. It's, more, it's just generally more crowded. Uh, the original station house still stands. That's the southern entrance. And it was not appreciated when it opened. Um, and if I didn't say it, uh, I'm going to say it now. The station opened in 1904. It was one of the original 28 stations of the New York City subway system. Yeah, pretty cool. So, the original station house, as I said, still stands. That's the southern entrance. It wasn't appreciated when it opened. And according to some nice digging in the newspaper archives, the Wikipedia entry states, when the station was completed, the station house's architecture was unpopular. An editorial in the New York Times derided it as, and I'm quoting, just in case I didn't say that, uh, uh, editorial in the New York Times derided it as a miserable monstrosity as to architecture. The Times cited widespread complaints from neighborhood residents, including a member of the Colonial Club on Amsterdam Avenue and 72nd Street, who likened the structure's original dark brown color to a mud fence. The West End Association had adopted a resolution in December of 1904 declaring the station house not only an offense to the eye, but a very serious danger to life and limb and recommending that it be demolished. End quote. Thankfully, it wasn't. I love that station. And I think it's charming looking. I can't imagine somebody calling it a miserable monstrosity as to architecture. But you gotta love New Yorkers because they are willing to be brutally honest. Okay, and I'm a native New Yorker, so, you know, there you go. Okay, so with overcrowding from its very first day, it only took five years before the station platforms were extended. First in 1909, by approximately 80 feet, the better to fit waiting riders and um, give some space to those disembarking. But each of the platforms, interestingly enough, were extended by different lengths. I could look into that, but then we're getting into a sense of direction that I don't have. Okay. So this station um, on the Broadway 7th Avenue line of the IRT, or Interpart, Interborough Rapid Transit. This was one of the three subway line companies that operated independently before they lo lost money and were consolidated into the uh, New York City subway system. As but it, but it took decades to really completely have them work together, have the signage all consistent. Um, so even decades after consolidation, people continued to refer to the lines by their original initials. I mean, my parents always did, and I still do even. You know, I'll distinguish between the BMT, the IND, and the IRT. So I'm skipping over quite a bit here because we are in an episode not devoted solely to the history of the subway. 
1960, the platforms were again extended. Landmark designation of the above-ground edifice of the station uh, came in 1979, and it was listed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1980. Uh, the 72nd Street Station was renovated, um, and um, the entrances were renovated uh, in in 2002 to the tune of tens of millions. Um, and when the above-ground portion of the station was revamped, uh, Verdi Square was also improved. And you can, um, we will talk more about Verdi Square in a little bit. So... Ten seconds away from Meg's cute little bookshop, we have Fox's books being book uh, being built. I think hers is called the Shop Around the Corner, and I think it's a, a dry cleaner. It's like at 69th or 70th and uh, Columbus. There's a lot of places that look kind of like that in the neighborhood, and I've gone back past that location so many times. You know, it's like wallpaper a little bit you know okay so she's got the cute bookstore his is being built hanks is very involved he's kind of the the lead on this part of the business you know getting these uh, bookstores up and going um and we see his father and we see his grandfather in the movie as well so that's uh kind of a funny part okay dave chappelle plays fox's best friend and he's the manager of the new bookstore he's oh he's he's the one sort of in the trenches on the designing and the building and then its operation uh, meg has her three employees one of whom is played by her is one of whom is her mother's her late mother's friend remember it was her mother's bookstore and we kind of learned that the mother uh, died too early and this friend is played by Jean Stapleton and who though she is independently wealthy and has many colorful stories in her past she loves to work the employees are all very close as one would have it in a fictional sweet bookshop so Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks meet in real life remember their email confidants but they meet in real life at one of those dazzling parties that only takes place in the movies or on TV a gathering where people who would never meet never be in attendance at the same event are of course both there then in romantic comedy style our protagonists keep running into each other, of course, even though you almost never run into the same people in this neighborhood. I have run into some people, but I have to say it's not like you're always seeing them, you know? But of course they do. This is a movie. Uh, he comes into the shop one weekend with his two, uh, his quasi-niece and nephew, I Will Save You the Convoluted Relationships. Um... And they have a little back and forth, but he pretends he's not Joe Fox. He's just Joe. She, at this point, doesn't know he's of the Fox's bookstore. But he does. she does find out pretty soon thereafter. We have another scene at Zabar's. Yes, they show the fish counter. 
Um, and there's a little scene where she's online. She's on a cash-only line. She doesn't realize it. She gets up to the cashier. She starts begging, but it, of course it's not helping because we have a cold, indifferent cashier. And who melts this cashier in the warmth of a charm offensive but Joe Fox? Um, Zabar's is an institution itself. It's on Broadway at 80th Street. And I will just tell you, this is a fish counter I feel I can call home. I can't remember. I, I could never count how many times I've been there, how many times my husband, my kids have been here. We mourned when our favorite slicer of locks retired. And we were not the only ones. The New York Times actually did a piece on this guy. He was like a virtuoso. And he wouldn't even talk to you. This was not a guy who would make conversation. But he sliced that, sliced that locks like, oh my God, a Stradivarius was being played. Um, you have to know when to go, how to order, spend some time observing. It is a beautiful thing to watch these guys. And yes, they're all men, slice the locks. But getting back to the movie. Alas, when Fox's Books opens, uh, Meg Ryan sails, head south. And our email confidants, remember, they're pen pals. They don't know each other. Um, they're very much enmeshed with Tom Hanks, who says, well, I'm a businessman if you're having problems. And he gives Meg Ryan this very aggressive business advice. It's business. It's not personal. She takes the hint, and she mounts this spectacular media campaign to save uh, her little bookshop. And there's tons of attention, and there's picketing, and uh, TV coverage. But even with all of that... Um, Big business with its blandness and its lower prices crushes the little guy and Meg Ryan decides to close her store. And remember that all this time in veiled and generous general ways they're discussing these issues in this confidential email correspondence, but very generally and of course anonymously. So conveniently, because it's a romantic comedy and not real life, these two are not married to their significant others. They both break up with their significant others. Um, I'm leaving out quite a bit. There are wonderful, wonderful performances by these supporting actors. I mean, just great. So at this point, our email correspondents, they've gotten very close. They decide to meet in real life. And conveniently, they live in the same neighborhood, not across the country or something like that. Remember, this is before um, any kind of uh, email dating apps or maybe right at the start. So, you know, they're not clicking on where they live when they get into it or anything like that. Okay. There's no location finding on phones at this point. So Hanks discovers before he goes into the cafe meeting spot on a nice evening, he discovers who his correspondent has been. Um, he brings Dave Chappelle. It's kind of a funny scene, but, but he knows. He now knows who it is. And so instead of going in as the email confidant, he goes in as himself, pretending that he's just run into her there. And, eh, you know, it's kind of a funny scene. So now we have this situation where Hanks knows everything, but Meg Ryan knows nothing about uh, her email pen pal. 
So at this point, Hanks in real life begins courting Meg Ryan. I mean, he's always been attracted to her. Um, he's always found her, you know, sort of quirky, interesting. Um, but he's been a little afraid of her. But now he really begins court- courting her. After all, by this time, he knows her really well, right? Through this email correspondence. He shows up at her apartment. He takes care of her when she has a cold. They go to the farmer's market. They're seen at Verdi Square. And now, yes, we'll talk about the history of this square. First, I have to point out, because I don't know how you get over it. It's the most obvious thing. This is not a square. I mean, it's called a square. That's in its name. But it is not by shape. If anyone has taken even, you know, element, not even elementary school geometry. But, you know, when you're a toddler and you find out what a square is and a rectangle is, right? You know that a triangle is three-sided. This And a square is four-sided, right? Etc. So this is no square. It's not a square. It's not even a rectangle. It's a small public space roughly in the shape of a triangle where West 72nd meets Broadway and on the other side of the triangle, Amsterdam Avenue. I will just say if you're going to be in New York, one of my favorite pizza places in the city is right nearby. It's on Amsterdam right by 74th. It's called Freddie and Pepper's. Just the right amount of grease and cheese to tomato sauce ratio. Nice crust. Tiny tables. No service. It's a few steps below ground. It is a hole in the wall if there ever was one. I, I don't know how much cleaning goes on there. I think they're, that generally you get the feeling it's clean where they're, where they're making the food. Anyway, it's a great tiny place. Okay. So... We have Verity Square. Now we have the Manhattan Street Grid, which laid out these streets dating back to 1811. Thank you to the Bowery Boys podcast for covering this topic so well. If you are interested in New York City history, the Bowery Boys podcast is a must. Um, But 1811, obviously, this triangle did not bear the name of Italian opera composer Giuseppe Verdi. Verdi wasn't born, in fact, until 1813. And his name wasn't associated with this triangle until 1921. And just as an aside, Verdi's operas include such classics as Aida, La Traviata, Atello, and Rigoletto. So the square, or triangle, features a statue of Verde, as well as trees and benches. Uh, but mainly the triangle is a good path for pedestrians going from the Amsterdam side up from 72nd or 73rd to Broadway or down. Uh, maybe to buy locks and bake salmon at Zay Bars, uh, located several blocks north, remember, at 80th on Broadway, but closer if you're grocery shopping to Fairway, the grocery store that is always crowded. And oftentimes with people who take grocery shopping as like a form of guerrilla warfare, warfare, I will not say more. So prior to the subway's arrival in 1904, Verdi Square was not actually its own space. It was part of what was the north end of a larger triangle called Sherman Square, named in 1891 for Union Army General William Tecumseh Sherman, who lived near the square and who had died that year, 1891, hence 
Sherman Square, really a triangle, where Broadway cuts across on its diagonal diagonal trajectory. And we have uh, nearby 10th Avenue has become Amsterdam Avenue. Um, that triangle now extends from 70th up to 72nd, but it once covered up to 73rd Street, which is the northern edge of Verdi Square. So this triangle was divided when the subway came in and the 72nd Street subway station was placed in the middle. In fact, the platforms and the tracks of the station lie underneath Sherman Square. Now, I will digress for just one moment to say that no one who lives or works or who has spent a lot of time in this neighborhood, or maybe three people among the thousands, has ever heard of the name Sherman Square, has ever referred to this little strip of concrete and greenery as Sherman Square. Nobody, nobody will know this. But for some reason, Verdi Square, a decent number of people know. Maybe because of the statue, the nameplate, and it's very it's a very pretty spot, nicely designed. So, from the New York City Parks website about the triangle named after Verdi, and I will quote the president of the Verdi Monument Committee, Carlo Bassati, championed public recognition of preeminent Italians. End quote, and I will just say, remember New York has a lot of Italians in it, and particularly we're talking here uh, the beginning of the 20th century. And going back to the quote, Carlo Bassati, in his role as founder and editor of Il Progresso Italo-Americano, he used his newspaper to raise funds by public subscription. Bassati was instrumental in erecting this monument, as well as those honoring Christopher Columbus, Giuseppe Garibaldi, Giovanni de Varazzano and Dante Alighieri, all of which are located in New York City parks. The Verdi Monument was unveiled on October 13, 1906, a day after the 414th anniversary of Columbus's discovery of America. The day began with a march of Italian societies from Washington Square to the site at Broadway and West 72nd Street. Over 10,000 people attended the unveiling, attesting to the significance of the occasion in uniting Italian-Americans in celebration of their cultural and artistic heritage, end quote. Now remember, the statue, erected in 1906, comes before the naming of the square. And according to Wikipedia, and I quote, musicians frequently visited the park during the early 20th century. These included ten tenor Enrico Caruso and conductor Arturo Toscanini, who lived in the Ansonia, as well as composers George and Ira Gershwin, who lived a few blocks away on Riverside Drive, end quote. And the Ansonia is just north on the Broadway side of uh, Verdi Square. So these are all very local people. Riverside Drive, yes, just a few blocks away. So we have that statue in ni 1906, with Verdi becoming the face of this tiny park, and in 1921, the square, actually a triangle, is officially named for Verdi. 
Wikipedia says the shape is actually a trapezoid, and, and that may be technically true. So I won't go against them on that. <laughs> so like much of the city we had in the six, 1960s and 70s, we had defunding. We had the continuation of folks flocking to the suburbs. Many wonderful spots in the um, city in the city, all over the city, becoming gritty, even dangerous, and here at Verity Square that meant drug dealers hanging out, um, as well as other parks in the city, hanging out and their ca customers uh, standing around, as well as uh, people who are unhoused. And um, we might have to visit the 1971 movie, The Panic in Needle Park, because real life took a cue then from fiction with the nickname for a time of the square being Needle Park. Uh, according to the New York City Parks website, in 1974, Verdi Square was designated designated a scenic landmark by the Landmarks Preservation Commission, one of only nine public parks to receive this distinction. Neighborhood volunteers started beautifying the square in the late 70s, and the statue was restored in 1997. Uh, Verdi Square was enlarged considerably in 2003 when the 72nd Street subway station was expanded uh, with there was a new station house um, added, and a plaza within the park was added. So you kind of expand. Uh, I can't explain it exactly um, to fit the space and where the uh, kind of sidewalk paths are. Um, you can view the Verity Square prior to the renovation in this movie because that's a few years before. Um, and in the movie, you see the greenery fenced off, but not really as accessible to people. And there's no benches in the movie. Um, and the movie also features what was then a new little green market at Verdi Square. So one more feature of this charming space, which I, I have to mention before we go back to our film, is it's a great place for people watching uh, and seeing kind of the real New York and who lives in the neighborhood. Um, and there's also a little, uh, a little landmark within this uh, the square besides the statue. Um, and descri it's described in Michael Min, Min M-I-N-N, his website, and I will quote, the lamppost near the corner of Amsterdam and 72nd Street is a luminaire, an ornate five-lamp structure that was one of a pair built between 1913 and 1935 that originally flanked the staircase to the Fireman's Memorial on Riverside Drive at 100th Street. The poles were vandalized in the 1970s, and the survivor was placed in storage, and that lamp was restored and placed here in the fall of 2004, end quote. And I will say, we are going to look at Riverside Drive, but if you go to Riverside Drive at 100th Street to see that Fireman's Memorial, it is a really nice uh, spot, by the way. Okay, back to our movie. We have Tom Hanks. He's courting Meg Ryan. He knows their identities and the whole situation. She's still in the dark. So Hanks here is the perfect actor for this role. Um, because, not because it's, it's a, like this brilliant 
dramatic performance, but because in in, in almost anyone else's hands, uh, there could be a creepy feel to what goes on in the movie, but we're never creeped out with Tom Hanks because you're always... Uh, feel comfortable. He There's a real inner goodness and sweetness about Tom Hanks, so you never feel like anything creepy is going on. So Tom Hanks's character, he goes deep here, having fun toward the end of the movie with playing this whole uh, both sides of this equation, the anonymous pen pal and, you know, the real life uh, Joe Fox in terms of, you know, um, fooling Meg Ryan, right? Um, so he asks Meg Ryan out in real life, uh, in pen pal life. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm even confusing them here. In pen pal life, he his, the email guy asked, or alter ego, <laughs> asked Meg Ryan out to meet at a spot in Riverside Park. And then, as himself, as Joe Fox who is now, he's become like the flirtatious, kind of more than a friend, but who knows, is he more than a friend at this point, um, to get together beforehand. And they meet before this blind date, and they venture over to Gray's Papaya, also featured in a Sex and the City episode. It's a small hot dog place at 72nd uh, and Broadway. It's not a deli, okay? It is not a deli. It's just a place you get a cheap hot dog, very cheap, and maybe punch or soda. And I'd have to say in 1988 on this block of 72nd Street stood two neighborhood institutions now no longer with us, both of which I greatly miss. 72nd Street Bagel, and especially Fine and Shapiro, a wonderful, friendly, great food New York deli that had the same waitress for over 30 years. Oh, I can't tell you the description of the smell when you would walk in. It was just the perfect smell of every neighborhood New York deli. Okay, back to the movie. Tom Hanks uh, walks Meg Ryan home. She has plenty of opportunity during this little pre-date, if you will, to say, it's you, you're the one, I don't need to meet Mr. Email Pen Pal. But she hesitates. Even though she likes uh, Joe Fox, she wants to meet Mr. Pen Pal. And... Uh, this sort of gave me a problem the first time I watched the movie, but not as much the second time, I have to say. Um, so the pen pals are set to meet in Riverside Park. And now, of course, how could we not? We go to the history of Riverside Park. Um, so this is a park, I will say, that is really used and appreciated by people who live on the Upper West Side. You know, it's not inundated by tourists the way Central Park is. You do, it's, it's a large park spanning about four miles, and it's a space where you can feel alone and away from the hustle, the bustle, the noise, and crowds of the city without leaving the city. Very pretty. There's lots of nice views. Um, and this park is well worth an episode on its own because it's both a destination and a thoroughfare for walkers and bikers. Um, I would say you could mention cars because that's that's part of the history of the park. Um, but but you could say that that's secondary. Okay. 
So Riverside Drive is an avenue on the west side. Uh, it's It runs next to Riverside Park, and this is all kind of next to the Hudson River and the Hudson River Parkway, which we will I will mention. Uh, I had a family who lived on... I had family. I shouldn't say I had a family. <laughs> I had a family who lived on that street for years, and I want to say it is always windy walking down that last block down toward Riverside Drive. It just is. And it's very hilly at this point. It's kind of steep. Uh, it's a very pretty span of blocks, Riverside Drive, especially, I would say, up, 80, uh, up above 80th Street. Lots of trees and beautiful townhouses and buildings. And before we talk about the park, I do have to do some name dropping to mention famous residents and fictional characters who have lived on Riverside Drive. Among the real people, we have such luminaries as Saul Bellow, Ralph Ellison, Marion Anderson, George and Ira Gershwin, Hannah Arendt, William Randolph Hearst, J. Ro uh, Robert Oppenheimer, Sergei Rachmaninoff, and Babe Ruth. And I've got to tell you, I could go on for another 10 minutes of famous people who've lived here. Fictional characters, among others, who have had addresses on Riverside Drive include Miriam and Joel Maisel from The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Oscar Madison and Felix Unger from The Odd Couple, but only in the play. They actually live somewhere else in the movie and definitely on the TV show. Liz Lemon from 30 Rock and Will Grace and Jack from Will and Grace. So Riverside Park and Riverside Drive were built together. The park now runs from 59th up to 158th Street, though the street goes up to 181st. The park was originally built from 72nd to 125th Street. And I have to say there's a different feel once you get to 72nd Street. In terms of history, you know, play, you know, kind of figuring out where we are, in the history of the city and what's going on as we're thinking about the park. We have Central Park, which was partially opened in 1858 and completed in around 1873. And if you're familiar, this area of Manhattan was still pretty rural at the time. Um, pretty undeveloped, certainly not feeling like you were in the middle of a city. When the park, Central Park, is built, a small African-American town was actually destroyed in the building of that park. Uh, the Dakota Apartment Building, very famous building, which sits on next to Central Park at 72nd Street and has been home to Lauren Bacall, Rosemary Clooney, Yoko Ono. We all know about the John Lennon, John Lennon assassination. Um, it was erected in 1884, and it's actually named for what was then the Dakota Territory. And it's named for it as if to say it's in the middle of nowhere. It could be as far out as the Dakotas. And the, the old photos of that building show really nothing surrounding the building. It's open land up there on the west side in 1884. And I will say it went down a real rabbit hole on the building of the Dakota and... Um, and the area on the block it owned and what became of that? Very interesting. Okay, if you're looking for a rabbit hole to dive down. So, um, 
when Riverside Park and the development along the street next to it, Riverside Drive, are they're conceived in 1866 when the New York City Parks Commission receives state approval to purchase the land and the streets west of Central Park uh, at this point are being just laid out. So they receive state approval for this bit of land to have a park, and these streets are just being laid out west of Central Park. So West End Avenue, the side streets, uh, Riverside Drive, blah, blah, blah. So we're talking about a twinkle in the eye in terms of creating a beautiful neighborhood, creating a public space, um, and at the center of the whole notion, because this is New York City um, creating profit. So Frederick Law Olmsted, yes, Mr. Famous, drafts his plan for Riverside Park between 1873 and 1875. Uh, during this time, Olmsted was also uh, overseeing the renovation of the U.S. Capitol grounds. And remember, he is by this time a rock star in park design and city planning due to his fame from Central Park. According to uh, the Riverside Park, the history uh, page of the Riverside Park uh, Conservancy website, and I quote, Olmsted's plan, which also included designs for Fort Washington Park and Morningside Park, called for these park lands to be designed around the existing landscape. Olmsted wrote in 1873 that Riverside Park presented great advantages as a park because the riverbank had been for a century occupied as the lawns and ornamental gardens in front of the country seats along its banks. Its foliage was fine and its views magnificent, end quote, because there had been country estates of wealthy New Yorkers up here, kind of like we're going to get out of town and this was their out-of-town place, even though it was part of New York City. According to Harlem World, and I quote, from 1875 to 1910, architects and horticultural, horticulturalists such as Calvert Vaugh and Samuel Parsons laid out the stretch of park and road between 72nd and 125th Streets according to the English gardening ideal. End quote. Uh, the park was extended to 137th Street in 1902, but even into the 1920s, much of this park is undeveloped, with only the paths laid out. And worse still, there were two garbage dumps located in the park, one at 96th Street, so that's just a few blocks from the final scene in the movie, You've Got Mail. There's a garbage dump. There's out door sewage, squatters' huts, and coal emissions from the trains, because you have trains going by on the west side. And they're not covered tracks over there. More coffee. Next we have Mr. Voldemort himself, Parks Commissioner Robert Moses, Early in his tenure, in 1934, turning his attention and his facility for obtaining lots of funding to Riverside Park. In his usual preference for the automobile, he had the Henry Hudson Parkway built next to the park and along the Hudson River. And I will say there was neighborhood opposition to that, to having this um, road, this automobile road next to the river instead of the park. He also favored 
uh, white and certain ethnic communities over African-American communities and poor communities by playing placing new playgrounds, baseball fields, and tennis, handball, and basketball courts near white neighborhoods. Uh, Moses also fulfilled years of planning to build over the railroad tracks, which greatly extended the park. And this massive project encompassing the park extension and the parkway uh, cost twice as much as the Hoover Dam, which was also a Depression-era project. So since this episode is not solely a part of the park, I am leaving out lots of facts. There's a ton of history related to this park, but I do have to mention uh, its relationship to former President Donald Trump. He was involved tangentially in the last major set of improvements to Riverside Park. Um, after decades of back and forth and advocacy and plans being proposed and rejected and maybe lawsuits brought, um, Trump was permitted to build apartment houses, now called Riverside South, which are located on top of a former railroad yard on the far west side. Uh, Trump's proposals for the site dates back to the 70s, um, and, and the early proposals involved way more, way higher buildings and I think maybe even more buildings, but this was strongly opposed by local advocacy advocacy groups. Um, Trump sold his controlling interest to developers from Hong Kong even before construction began um, and the development began, though he didn't sell his entire share and his name did remain attached to the project. Construction actually started in 1997 and was completed in 2020. In 2019, the residents... uh, successfully petitioned the owner of the buildings to remove Trump's name due to his behavior during the 2016 campaign. So as part of the development in 2007, Riverside Park was extended down to 57th Street. Part of this construction included a new bikeway and walkway. And this is a beautiful open space on the river that links the original Riverside Park and its Olmstead and Garden design with other public spaces uh, along the river. So we're now in Riverside Park at the 91st Street Garden in our movie. Coming up to the last scene, Meg comes over in a very sweet linen dress, Hank shows up with his dog, who has been... You've seen the the dog throughout the movie, but we're not going into all the details. Meg makes the connection. She sees Tom Hanks come, you know, closer, and she gets teary, and she cries, and he tells her not to cry, and she said, I wanted it to be you so badly. They finally kiss. The end. The scene takes place on a gorgeous day, lots of flowers and greenery, perfect. So, whether Meg Ryan should have earlier in the day declared her affections and said, I don't need to meet Mr. Pen Pal, is something a fan of romantic comedies could debate. Uh, Why does she need to meet this other guy when she has someone she likes so much right in front of her? Maybe she guesses it's him. I don't know. Whatever. Many of you are saying, I need to go, like, 
watch some sports right now or listen to a sports podcast. I don't know. Anyway, we've learned lots of history about this little area. And um, thank you so much for listening today. I'm your host, Cheryl Gross-Glazer. From all of us at Altered Mobility to you, it's been a pleasure. Contribute your thoughts on social media. We have lots of resources listed in our episode notes at the website. Have a fabulous couple of weeks. Until we meet again. Uh, I wish you good health, good coffee, tea, or whatever, and a wonderful time. Bye-bye. Sorry.